Welcome to the Scam Economy with your host, Matt Bender. What do I, the host of Scam Economy, have in common with cryptocurrency? It's that this winter has been brutal for the both of us. Hello everyone and welcome to Scam Economy. I am your host, Matt Binder. And for regular listeners of this show, you may have realized that there hasn't been a new Scam Economy episode dropping in your feed or on YouTube over the past couple of weeks. (coughs) And that's because I've been pretty sick. Nothing serious, but there's been days where it was difficult for me to uh, even say a few words without coughing, and that's no fun if you're listening to a podcast or watching a show on YouTube. But Scam Economy is back and ready to go, and that's something I'm not quite sure I can also say about crypto. Before we get into this episode, let me just say to support this show, patreon.com slash mattbinder to become a monthly paying subscriber. You can also support this show by subscribing to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mattbinder and following me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash mattbinder. And now, as for this episode of Scam Economy, we're going to talk about just how bad 2023 has been for crypto and we're only two months in. And the two main things we're going to focus on are the banks cutting ties with crypto exchanges, making what they do very difficult, if not nearly impossible, and the regulatory crackdown on staking. Again, making what crypto exchanges do very difficult, if not nearly impossible. And there is a lot to talk about. And joining me now to break this all down for us He is the co-host of Crypto Critics Corner and head of research at Protos, Bennett Tomlin. Thank you so much for joining me on Scam Economy today. Glad to be back. Always a pleasure to have you on because whenever there's something that's super like in the weeds, I'm like, Bennett is the guy to get on to to, to break this down for us Uh, because we're dealing with two things today um, that... You know, maybe on its face seem like two separate issues, but they're really not in terms of the, I guess you can say, uh, institutions sort of uh, getting really fed up with crypto after, I guess, feeling like they needed to, uh, you know, follow the trends that started in 2001, 2002, uh, excuse me, 2021, 2022. And now that uh, it all went to shit. Uh, oh, thanks to crypto winter. Um, they're not feeling that way about crypto anymore. I think we've definitely seen a change in posture from regulators broadly in terms of their stance towards crypto. FTX and Alameda's very public collapse and everything that led up to FTX and Alameda's collapse really, I think, gave regulators the political will and the permission to treat crypto differently than they have in the past. Right. And I guess we should jump into the first issue we're going to talk about today. And that is over the past couple of weeks, like literally it felt like the second, uh, we you know, happy new year. We're into January and, Oh, what's going on here? All these stories start dropping of various different, uh, banks, dropping 
their ties with various different crypto exchanges. Yeah, and it did really start the beginning of the new year. And I think the precipitating event where the regulators started to really communicate to banks how their opinions had changed was a joint statement issued on January 3rd by the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, the President's Board of the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC, the Federal Depository Insurance Commission, which basically laid out, uh, we don't think engaging with primarily crypto customers is a safe way to run a bank. We don't think banks should be holding cryptocurrencies. We don't think uh, banks should be holding stablecoin reserves. What they actually said is stablecoins as a structure present a run risk both on themselves and on the bank holding any of their reserves. Um, and so, yeah, all three of the major banking regulators basically came together and issued this statement at the very beginning of the year saying, what you've been doing, we are very worried about. And that seemed to be in large part motivated by the fact that FTX and Alameda Research were able to so freely access the U.S. banking system and their sudden collapse, as you mentioned, started to cause some banks some issues. In the immediate aftermath of FTX, both Signature Bank of New York and Silvergate Bank ended up having to tap the federal home loan bank in order to get, it's not really a bailout, to get emergency capital to remain well capitalized and to handle the large number of withdrawals they were seeing. And both of them have since basically announced that they are largely moving away from crypto. Silvergate, in specific, this news dropped very shortly before we started recording, um, Silvergate is in talks with their board and their auditors to determine whether Silvergate Bank will continue existing. Their auditors have requested additional information from them, and they're worried after the huge amount of deposits that have been withdrawn that their bank may no longer work as a bank. Right. Wow. That's that's wild. I should say, because we're recording this, that we are talking on the evening of Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. And I would like to uh, say that I, I knew this was going to happen, which is why I contacted you the other day to set this uh, up. But I, I, I can't say that. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> now, let, let's go back a little bit because I feel like people who, who listen to this show, I've done a number of episodes on FTX and Alameda, and I'm sure they're going to come up throughout the episode. But, but I've done a number of episodes on FTX and Alameda and what happened to crypto that further caused it to to really crash. I mean, it was already on uh, shaky ground following uh, the collapse of stablecoin Terra and its sister coin Luna, and then the various different crypto lending companies that uh, sort of fell in like a domino effect that happened after all that. Uh, so, you know, FTX, I wouldn't say the cherry on top because there's a lot more than that, but uh, it certainly helped uh, make the issue much larger than it already was. Um, but I do want to sort of discuss what are these banks? Because when we're talking, I want to make it clear to people who are listening, we're talking about like banks, like bank banks, like banks where people go and uh, deposit their money. I mean, I think these banks are probably more uh, business to business style, uh, banking institutions, but still it's, we're talking about, uh, fiat currency, not crypto exchanges. So I, I want people to understand what are, what were, uh, or for the banks that still are working with crypto exchanges, what are their role in 
the you know in the crypto industry what what is it that they do for these crypto exchanges largely they make it easy for dollars to get into and out of the cryptocurrency exchanges many people who are interested in purchasing crypto need to use dollars to purchase it and so they need a way to get those dollars to the exchange so they can trade them for Shiba Inu, Floki, whatever, whatever it is they desperately need. They send their hard-earned dollars to the exchange so they can do that. And then after Shiba Floki Inu, Inu goes up 10,000% and you end up a multimillionaire on the dumbest coin to ever exist, you need a way to get those hard-earned dollars back out of the exchange. And so that's largely what the banks are providing is they're allowing these cryptocurrency exchanges and really the customers of them to easily get money onto and off of the exchange. Historically, and that's part of why this current moment is interesting, it has been very challenging for cryptocurrency exchanges to find banking. Banks were worried about the compliance risks associated with cryptocurrency, with money laundering risks. Just broadly, it was generally too risky to deal with until a few years ago when you really saw, led by like Silvergate, Signature, and some of these banks, a new embrace of the cryptocurrency ecosystem by the banking sector. And what we're now kind of seeing is the return back to what it was in 2016, 2017, 2018, where it was really hard for cryptocurrency exchanges to get banking. Interesting. And now we're talking about... Uh seems like integral uh intricate i should say uh or integral i i put both words together intro oh, wow i can't believe i did that but an integral part <laughs> of how the crypto exchanges work like how their business works involves these banks like we're not just talking about because uh, I wanted to sort of uh, point this out to people we're not talking about like oh the you know the the business side of these crypto exchanges they can't do their bank they have trouble doing banking or whatever which would be an issue but um we're talking about integral parts of how these exchanges work who are cutting ties with them what have they been what have these these exchanges been doing without these uh banks working with them it's been a mix <laughs> some some still have access to banking Many okay. of the U.S. domiciled exchanges still seem to have access to banking, including Coinbase, Kraken, and I think even like Binance U.S. still has access to banking, or it did as of like a week ago. We'll put an asterisk next to that because even if you get this episode out by tomorrow, I think there's a chance they may no longer have banking. Um, and so some of them have still had access to banking and still been able to do that. Many of the other more peripheral ones like Binance have had to avoid taking in dollars in that way. Um, many of these exchanges, like Binance used to not do any dollar banking at all. The way they started was as a Tether exchange. And so Tether was basically like their pseudo bank they used in order to have people be able to get dollars onto or off the exchange. People would supposedly send dollars to Tether and Tether would store them in their definitely very legitimate bank accounts. And then Tether would issue the Tethers against them and people could send those to whatever exchange they wanted. And then those exchanges didn't need to have the same access to the banking system because they could trust the always trustworthy Tether to keep track of all the dollars and make sure they have everything they need. And so they're, and so shadow banking and wildcat banking structures like stable coins will probably become important again. 
And if we go back to look at like 2017, 2018, there was a tendency for cryptocurrency exchanges to end up using alleged money launderers and stuff like that in order to move their money. So I imagine we'll see some of that. Uh, Bitfinex and Kraken both have described using Bitfinex, friends of Bitfinex, to process withdrawals and deposits, which means executives and their friends and family literally using their bank accounts to process deposits and withdrawals for Bitfinex. And Jesse Powell of Kraken has described renting employee PayPal accounts way back early in Kraken's history in order to facilitate withdrawals and deposits. So the more they get cut off from banking, the more they end up relying on the kind of shadow banking, wild banking, wildcat banking infrastructure that runs kind of alongside some of those rails. Sounds sort of money laundering esque. Uh, <laughs> I, I, at the very least, that sounds uh, definitely against the terms of service of a company like PayPal. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked Jesse, Cass, and I asked Jesse when we were having this conversation about the rented PayPal accounts if he thought that was legitimate and. His justification at the time, and I don't remember his exact words, so I'm not going to quote him, but the impression I was left with was that, sure, it might not have been the best thing we ever did, but it was what we had to do. And, like, if you go back and read Tether and Bitfinex testimony and stuff like that, you'll often kind of get that same undercurrent. Sure, we uh, bent the law, but it's what we had to do. None of the banks wanted us, so we had to lie to them. Can't blame us for that. Jeez. I'm I'm guessing uh, a lot was uh, a, a load was taken off when uh, you know all these banks were jumping to work with crypto companies uh, just two years ago. Uh, now that uh, they have to worry about that all over again. Uh, but I actually was you know when I was uh, doing some research for this episode, I I did not realize honestly um, that Silvergate. The bank that you you mentioned earlier on, the one that seems like it may possibly no longer exist, uh, per that Bloomberg article that came out just a few hours ago, as we're talking. Um, but I did not realize that they sort of um, transitioned their business model into basically becoming a bank for crypto. How did yeah, how, how did that? Yeah, go ahead. How did that happen? Well, they saw an opportunity, right? Most of these other banks were hesitant to bank cryptocurrency because of the reputational compliance and money laundering risks. And so they said, look at that. There's all these deposits we can take in that no one else seems to want. And so you had these banks like Silvergate and Signature really move into that. And both of those banks then set up like their own networks. Silvergate had the Silvergate Exchange Network and Signature Bank had the Signet Network which meant every time a new cryptocurrency company started banking at one of these banks, it became easier for users to transfer money between the different cryptocurrency companies. Because instead of needing to wire it or do an ACH transfer, whatever, you could just transfer it using their internal network basically instantaneously. And so each new cryptocurrency company that integrated with one of these amplified the network effect and made it so more cryptocurrency companies wanted to integrate with these two banks. Which means post FTX collapse when suddenly both of these banks announce they're no longer really interested in being crypto banks. There's a bit of a moment where the entire industry was like, oh, but we all had accounts at those and we thought those were the crypto banks. 
And they were the crypto banks. They pivoted their entire business models towards servicing these deposits, which made it particularly striking and somewhat hilarious after FTX when they came out. We're like, no, we're leaving our digital asset business, but we'll be fine. We've got other things. And all the analysts looked at their like recent revenue reports and they're like, do you though? Because they really didn't. They had shifted like their entire business model to servicing these deposits, which now had this whole new added regulatory dimension to them. I mean, it, it made a lot more sense to me once I realized that this was like the crypto bank that they were <laughs> that they were going through such issues. Because um, it seemed weird that, like, yeah, of course, uh, you know, banks have major customers or clients who a hit there would hurt them. But I was a little bit like, why is this one bank seemingly taking it a bit harder than some of the, Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> Not such a great idea to uh, pivot your entire business model uh, to an unproven uh, financial, uh, uh, unproven exchanges that sell risky financial assets that really were only uh, thrusted into the mainstream uh, about two years ago. Really weird decision there. Do we know? Do we know who was behind that? Who's a, who, whose idea was that? <laughs> I I can't remember which executives for which bank would be behind that off the top of my head. But like I think broadly it was they saw an opportunity. There were some. A couple years ago, there were some signals, especially from like the office of the comptroller of currency, that they might be widening the like approval for banks dealing with crypto. So as soon as there was some of this tentative language in some of the OCC statements, I think these two banks, especially and some other banks as well, saw an opportunity. They went from being much smaller banks to having way more deposits than they ever had before by trying to service this industry. And their executive takeaway, I think, was that the they believed when they made that pivot that the risk was overstated. These cryptocurrency companies aren't what the banking regulators think. These are honest and upstanding businesses, which can definitely be run well and will not represent that kind of risk. And so they saw this opportunity, saw a little bit of a window for it and tried to move aggressively into it. Right. Now, I, 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 I saw that uh, I think Reuters had a report just yesterday, um, February 28th, that really sort of, to me, showed – just how widespread this sort of backing away from crypto is to these uh, financial for these financial institutions like, uh, you know, we were talking Silvergate, this this crypto uh, centric bank. And, you know, there were some other banks um, that probably most people don't know as like a household name. Uh, but then I saw that uh, Visa and MasterCard were backing off, at least for now backing off um, their partnerships with crypto firms to, I, I think they were uh, launching like blockchain-based products, were planning on doing it, and now they're just like, we want to see how regu the regulatory bodies are going to act on this. And also the market conditions here are not quite uh, good for crypto right now. But I, you know, because when, when these sort of partnerships happen, um, when the old school financial institutions were welcoming crypto into their gra good graces over the past couple of years. So many of these crypto advocates uh, and influencers were pointing to this as like, you know, skeptics are wrong here. Look what's going on. We're, we're going to the big, we're going with the big boys now. 
And I mean, it didn't take much for, I mean, it didn't take much for these, these companies to then backtrack and say, Hey, you know what? This is not where we, uh, where we want to go right now, at least. Yeah. Yes. And I think Visa and MasterCard specifically, I don't, I don't remember exactly what their full crypto projects were, but I know they both had partnerships with Paxos, who is a stablecoin issuer who issues um, the Paxos dollar, but more importantly, issues Binance USD. And so Paxos recently got notified by the New York Department of Financial Services that they are no longer allowed to issue BUSD, Binance USD, which was this white labeled product they were doing with Binance. And then they reportedly got a Wells notice from the SEC telling them that BUSD, Binance USD, may be an unregistered security. And so I think that both Visa and MasterCard were working on white label solutions with Paxos. And so part of Visa and MasterCard backing off might be because Paxos was backing off. I also think their specific partnership in, involved Evolve Bank and Trust, which was another FTX banking partner, which I think has also had to back away from a lot of their cryptocurrency-related activities recently um, for the same reason all these banks have had to. And so, yeah, Visa and MasterCard, I think, were working with these outside firms in order to start these crypto products. Those firms have had to back away, and there's not enough reason for Visa and MasterCard to take some strong stance and try to find replacements or alternatives and keep barreling head forward into an industry where regulators are saying, don't go into that industry. Now, now, which which exchanges have been most affected by um, these, you know, these banking partnerships falling apart? I mean, I know I had seen um, and this you could correct me if I'm wrong, because this could be totally unrelated. But I, I recall seeing, um, you know, Binance was moving large sums of money around um, what exchange what have had what have uh, some of the, the bigger exchanges had to do? uh in the fallout of this it's a little bit unclear exactly what some of them have done as far as i can tell at least last time i checked binance still really has no u.s dollar banking conduits and i don't expect that binance is going to be able to easily find replacements we know binance is under investigation by the united states department of justice for money laundering with mlars and the seattle prosecutor ready or sorry with the seattle prosecutor ready to go ahead with a prosecution reportedly with mlars at the doj holding it up for now um and we've seen kind of this increasing pressure to limit Binance's ability. And I think if we look at Reuters reporting especially, they have really seemed to have a bead on Binance for the last couple months, talking about this ongoing money laundering investigation, discussing the movements of funds from Changpeng Zhao can own uh, Binance US to his trading firm Merit Peak to KeyVision, which was a firm he was using to bank Binance. And like all these movements of these hundreds of millions of dollars have the reporting on that has largely been led by uh, Reuters. My impression is that the ongoing federal investigation of Binance has ended up touching a bunch of these entities. And so some exchanges like Binance, I expect to be basically completely cut off from U.S. dollar banking rails for the foreseeable future. Some other banks like Crypto.com has so far been able to find a replacement. I think they recently switched from Silvergate to Signature to maintain access, um, though it's unclear how much longer Signature is going to want to keep taking on these remaining exchanges. Uh, there's a few others who seem to... Big opportunity for crypto exchanges in the banking world right now. <laughs> 
Oh man, I mean, FTX kind of did try to buy a bank to help them get banking, right? Um, Alameda Research offered a $50 million loan and then an $11 million investment in order to get a stake in what was then Farmington State Bank and was renamed as Moonstone Bank up in uh, Washington. Um, so, yeah, there are cryptocurrency companies who are literally trying to get into banking in the hopes of maintaining access to banking. Yeah, because I, I saw that Reuters report um, about uh, you know Binance moving four hundred something like four hundred million dollars out of their signature account, uh, silver excuse me Silvergate account, and I actually was wondering like I couldn't tell is this is this them protecting their funds because of something going on at Silvergate or is them move or is that them moving their money because of their own issues going on and they're trying to get a better control of that yeah. <laughs> It had nothing to do with anything going on at Silvergate, at least as far as I can tell. Barring any new information, I think the most likely interpretation of it is the money was in one place and CZ wanted it in a different place. And CZ owns all these entities, so CZ had the money moved, is I think broadly the right way to look at those transactions. I don't know how many were like specifically him going, we need to move this at this time from this account to this account. Um, but he was broadly the one directing and controlling those transactions. Uh, so yeah, Silvergate was the bank in that. And then Silvergate was also uh, Bank One in Sam Bankman-Fried's recent superseding indictment, where they describe a bank fraud scheme that Sam Bankman-Fried was allegedly involved in, where Silvergate Bank gave a second account to Alameda Research under the North Dimension Incorporated entity. And then FTX started using that entity to bank FTX. And so Silvergate wasn't involved in that. They were involved in the Binance Binance US transfers. They were involved in some other Alameda research transfers. And there is reportedly an ongoing Department of Justice investigation into Silvergate. And one of the things they referenced today is that they are reassessing their internal controls, both financial and I'm assuming compliance related for things like money laundering. I never would have uh, guessed that we would get to a point where the question would be, um, is this happening because of the, uh, the, the failing crypto exchange or is this happening because of the failing bank that worked with the crypto exchange? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, let's but go here, with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, here we are, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, we 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 should really hold the 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 getting deeper to the Binance stuff for an episode of its own because that's that's a whole different ball game. Um, but one, I, I think I think we should actually this is perfect way to sort of segue into because we were just talking about um, you know banks interacting with crypto and the issues they're having there. But now we can talk about that second separate. But related issue, and the really the best way to describe it is how crypto exchanges act like banks, um, and that whole thing seems to be up in the air. Uh, what I'm talking about is the crackdown on staking, uh, at least in the United States. It seems like uh, the crypto exchanges uh, who depend on that, which does seem like it's a major. Uh, part of the crypto business model, um, not just exchanges. There's a number of, you know, the lending firms, um, the various different uh, <laughs> oh, 300 APR. 
<laughs> uh, schemes out there all depend on that too. Uh, staking uh, might not be long for this world in the States. Yeah, that certainly seems plausible. Um, and staking is a really bad word. It's one of those words in crypto that crypto people use, and then they apply it to like six different things and it starts to lose all of its meaning. Because staking both means like validating tra transactions and providing security on a proof of stake network like Ethereum. It also means putting your coins into a Ponzi like Olympus DAO. And sometimes it means giving your coins to Celsius to have them lend and go trade with. All three of those things are sometimes called staking. Um, and there does seem to be a crackdown coming on most of those, at least, in the United States. Uh, Kraken was... So Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, decided to make a whole thread where he's like, I'm hearing rumors that the SEC is going to crack down on staking. And the next day, uh, Kraken settles with the SEC and ends their staking program. Their staking program was primarily of the first type, like taking coins and using them to provide security on these blockchain networks. However, the SEC still found that because Kraken's efforts were involved in the returns by actually going out and staking the coins and that they were effectively being lent them by the customers, it still looked like a security. Coinbase then came out right after Kraken settled and did a whole nother statement where they said, our staking program is not a security, though. Um, and that's their stance, and they're sticking to it. And Brian says they're going to fight in court if the SEC tries to go after them. But it looks likely that Gary Gensler and the SEC are probably going to go, are probably going to go after Coinbase for their staking program. There's a little bit of ambiguity here because, as I understand it, there's a couple of legal differences between Krakens and Coinbase's, where Krakens involved the user giving, like, the loan of the coins to Payward Inc., the company behind Kraken, and Coinbase's contractually legally involves the user always having a claim on the coin in a more bankruptcy remote manner. And so it's possible that might be enough to distinguish Coinbase's program. But I think more likely, especially based on Gary Gensler's past statements on staking, it is more likely the SEC is going to pursue any custodial staking provider in the United States. It, see, it seems like a lot of the issues around, especially people who lost a lot of money in crypto, uh, let's say the past six months or so um, had to do with staking programs of, of various types. Um, so that seems to be why I guess the SEC is, is putting such a, you know, is dropping the hammer on staking. I mean, to me, it always seemed so schemey. Like, you know, it works like a, a you know, it, it technically, I guess, in that manner, when you're doing it with an exchange, works like a, a savings account at a bank. You know, you keep your money there and you get some sort of small return for leaving a certain, you know, the, the money with the bank. But the difference between the two is that um, if something happens to the bank, obviously, you know, your money is secure uh, due to uh, insurance that banks have to have. And when you're with a crypto exchange, that's not the case. And there are likely a lot of people, from my understanding, um, who might have pulled money out upon hearing things were going on, but didn't because they didn't want to mess up how much they thought they were going to make with staking. 
Yeah, and I think, again, this is kind of getting into, I think, part of the problem with the word staking is you did have places like Celsius use the word staking to describe basically them taking the coins and lending them out and acting as kind of the shadow bank. The first category of staking where you're taking coins and like using them to validate on a network should be safer, right? There's some amount of technical risk where if you really fuck up managing the keys, you could end up losing some portion of the principal. There are situations, certain attacks on the network where your rewards would go down or where you might be unfairly slashed. But it should, in most cases, be reasonably easy for you to protect the principal, which is kind of in sharp contrast to something like Celsius, where the principal, the money initially deposited, is by definition being lent out to try to earn this return. One is kind of native to the currency itself and based on like the networks these coins exist on. And one is kind of this just very exogenous activity where these people are lending these and trying to create kind of this perpetual motion machine of yield. Um, and so it is kind of interesting that the SEC is ex focusing their efforts and in including the first category, which is arguably somewhat safer because the nature of how these users are entering into it, because they still need to give up their coins to the exchange and they still depend on the exchange having the technical expertise to be able to earn this yield from the uh, network itself. The SEC seems to still feel that that is sufficient for it to qualify as a security. The other tricky thing, and this is kind of a problem for Kraken right now, is when they discontinued their staking program, they were able to return and unstake all the coins, except on Ethereum, because there's still no way to unstake on Ethereum and won't be until the Shanghai hard fork, which is scheduled for... End of this month, I think. Beginning of next month, maybe. Oh, so it's, it's going to happen in about 10 years. <laughs> Six months, maybe. <laughs> it, it's gone through the test nets, and it should work. It should work. They should be able to deploy it. But yeah, as you're alluding to, the initial deployment of proof of stake on Ethereum was oft delayed for a total of like six years behind schedule or something. And so like Kraken still has the Ethereum from these users staked on the Ethereum blockchain. They still can't withdraw. It's still earning rewards, but they can no longer give those rewards to the users as a byproduct of this agreement they entered into with the SEC, which is kind of a just hilarious clusterfuck. Is is uh, I, I again I don't know how they would do this, but is the SEC or maybe the better question is, has proof of stake networks like Ethereum weighed in on the issue? Because could this possibly affect, you know, could like the SEC go after? I again, Ethereum is not like a company like Coinbase yeah. or Kraken is, but could the SEC in theory? I guess go after the uh, you know the nonprofit or the organization that oversees Ethereum or whatever. They could try like the the initial Dow report back in 2017 under Clayton's SEC kind of made the implication that the initial sale of Ethereum could be considered a security sale that was later kind of effectively undone by Hinman's informal comments about sufficient decentralization. But that's never been like formally accepted by the SEC and has actually been like a point of contention in the ongoing um, Ripple lawsuit. And so it is possible for the SEC to go after Ethereum. I think it is too inconvenient to be worth it, which is kind of like the goal state for cryptocurrency. Like cryptocurrency is at its best when it makes itself too annoying for regulators to deal with. 
the unfortunate problem with that is getting to that state often makes it too inconvenient for any users to want to use it. But that's a separate issue. Um, they could try to go after like home stakers. The Ethereum Foundation is mostly a non-entity at this point. They could try to go after the like um, some of the initial people behind it. But I think it is pretty unlikely at this point. I think what they're going to keep doing though is targeting companies that offer staking as a service so like if someone is staking at home i don't think and again this isn't legal advice i'm not a lawyer or a psychic i don't think the sec is going to have the resources or desire to go after that but if you're a company like coinbase like Kraken, like one of these who's taking user coins and then staking them on their behalf i think that's where the sec is going to focus their efforts because like you said they are a company they have a mailbox and a lawyer and a CEO who you can call to speak in front of Congress or whatever if you need to. Like, it's an um, easier and more attractive target for the SEC to try to make their case against those entities rather than trying to go after whatever Ethereum broadly is at this point. It's still wild to me that they would, again, I know it took a while for them to do it, six years, but you think they would have been like, yeah, it took this long. We should probably have the unstaking mechanism built in when we launch this. Like it's like imagine if you deposited money at a bank, your your bank, and they were like, "By the way, the mechanism to withdraw this money, we don't have that built yet. You got to keep it here for the next uh, six months, a year or so." It's, we'll, we'll we're call working you. on. It. Yeah. <laughs> we're all hard at work. Um, yeah, it. There was a lot of debate, I remember, in the community about this with some people recommending that the launch be delayed until they had a thoroughly tested version with the withdrawals. And then there were some people who got really in their heads about the game theory surrounding, like, staking and unstaking and slashing and the penalties and, like, the initial run-up when you're getting all your stake onto the ne network and what it looks like if a bunch exits at once. And they wrapped themselves in such a pretzel that they and we're so far behind schedule i think that eventually it was de decided like look at we already have all these people staking because staking on the beacon chain launched way before ethereum actually switched over from proof of work to proof of stake and so there was already a bunch of ethereum which had been committed which they thought was sufficient for security. And so they figured at that point they might as well launch it so that they can have the next thing on their list be withdrawals. But it certainly feels weird to put your money into a thing you can't get it out of. And not like because it's a certificate of deposit and you've agreed not to take it out, but because it's impossible to take it out. That feels like a challenging proposition to make. And so it's it's fascinating how many people in cryptocurrency have decided that that is a deal they are willing to take. All right. I, I feel like if it was literally any other uh, crypto uh, other than Ethereum, uh, people would have been ringing the bells of scam. Like, like they'd be, scam, this is going to be a scam. You can't withdraw because they don't want you to because they want to force it, force you to stake. And then, uh, you know, a couple of days into the big uh, changeover where everyone's staking, the founders, the creators of the token are going to just withdraw all that money and run away. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the thing is, when you don't have a withdrawal mechanism, that means even the founders can't withdraw and oh, run that's away. Oh, like, that's true. Right. Because... I was thinking of so many of those because because back during like that that like yeah. that meme coin summer of 2021, that was like the mechanism that was built in for everyone buying those meme coins like uh, yeah. for the scam one. It's like oh buy in, but we're making sure that nobody can uh, withdraw their funds for at least like two months, and then two days into the launch. All the money's gone because the founder built in like a, a secret switch code just for them to withdraw the money. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of thing is a little bit harder to pull off in a system like Ethereum than something like, oh, I'm trying to think of one of the examples of the coins that did that with locked liquidity. Uh, Shiba, Shiba, the initial Shiba or uh, SafeMoon, the initial SafeMoon had that same problem. Promise of locked liquidity wasn't actually enforced the way they discussed. But in this case, like if they wanted to implement a withdrawal mechanism, they would have to send a new version of like post a new version of the node software and convince all the validators to like download and run it. And hopefully at least one of them would go, hey, what's this new part right here that whitelists only your guys' addresses, right? Hopefully that's what would happen. Um Though there have been examples on smaller blockchains of like contentious hard forks and stuff being forced through because basically no one was paying attention. I'm hoping that with the crazy number of billions of dollars that exist in the Ethereum DeFi ecosystem that someone is paying attention, but I'm not. It's not me. I'm not the one checking the code for the new node releases. So hopefully someone is. Right. I mean, it would it would be it would have been quite the turn for uh uh, Ethereum's founder, Vitalik. I mean, if all of a sudden he was like some international uh, criminal who ran away with all this money, um, I, I saw. This is we're getting. I, I don't want to get too off the uh, the topic, but I saw the other day something like he he was still concerned about uh, Ethereum's use because he's not seeing it actually used for transactions or something. And it's like, yeah, man, this has been the case for how many years now. Why? What's it going to take for a smart guy like you to sort of come to this uh, realization that people aren't using it for what you'd like them to? Sorry, can you run that by me one more time? Yeah, yeah, up. yeah. I saw this. Um, I saw a, a thing where Vitalik, uh, you know, said something like, um, you know, he he was, you know, looking at how. Uh, the the purpose of Ethereum's various transactions, and he just wasn't seeing it used in the way he he you know he envisioned Ethereum to be used for, in terms of like uh, I don't know transacting I guess for meaningful things and not just like wild speculation and buying various different like shit coins and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, this you see this is kind of a common refrain at a certain point for many of the cryptocurrency ideologues. The ones who aren't just there for the speculation or whatever, who actually do believe in the censorship resistant and that censorship resistance and that this kind of thing is important, will often kind of get to a point where they end up deeply disillusioned because they realize that these things they put this effort that they've invested this time into are very rarely used for the things they imagined. It is not common for people to fund dissidents with cryptocurrency and repressive regimes or to help make sure journalists in those same regimes can continue to operate or whatever. That's not what this stuff commonly ends up used for. And so the people who start out with this ideologically driven vision of that kind of thing do often end up like Vitalik disappointed when the most common reason people need censorship resistant tech, tech that cannot be stopped by 
banks society or law enforcement is because they're engaging in activities that banks society and law enforcement don't want them to and most of those activities and especially most of the ones that are profitable and draw more money are not remittances to el salvador they're people trying to money launder speculate scam defraud or whatever and so yeah that is a fact that you'll see many of these people end up grappling with at some point in their time in cryptocurrency with the fact that they are they've spent these time developing these things which are used towards these ends they would not want them used for right yeah those uh those dissidents overseas who uh need their their ethereum in about six months when they could uh, unstake their tokens <laughs> now now one th- I, I, I wrote this note earlier and I forgot to mention it, and I do want to touch upon it. I, you might have mentioned something about it, but I want to make sure we, we talk about it. Um, I don't know if this was involving the exchanges too or if this was just a deal with um, the failed crypto lenders. But in court proceedings on the legalities of the ownership of staked tokens, um, I believe the courts have ruled that those stake tokens actually don't belong to the customers, right? They actually are the property of the company that the customers entrusted in staking those tokens. Yeah, and see, so this I did kind of allude to this before. In cases like Celsius where the staking was just lending, yeah, it seemed like those were lent out and then they're part of the enterprise and you're an unsecured creditor trying to get your funds back. That was one of the issues with Kraken staking program. And that is why I think that's one of the reasons why Coinbase thinks they may be different than Kraken is because they, the way they set up their contract, their terms around it is I believe they try to keep the legal lease in a way where the coins are held in a bankruptcy remote way and are supposed to remain like owned by the customer who deposits them. Whether or not that ends up being sufficient to convince the SEC that this shouldn't be a security is extraordinarily dubious to me. But it is at least potentially a version of staking where these coins are still at least legally held by these individuals, even if they're not practically held by these individuals. Oh, boy. They're, they're, uh, I feel like, you know, with, with both of these things we just uh, discussed uh, on this episode – um, it, it strikes me as exchanges should be very worried about how they're going to sustain some sort of business model without the the banking partnerships or or cobbled together banking partnerships, which obviously even that seems like just a short term solution. Um, and then this this crackdown on staking, and I guess it all sort of hinges on uh, whether Coinbase found like the one way to stake legally. Uh, <laughs> SCC hates this one simple trick. Right. Um, <laughs> like, what would they like? What, what, what's the you know? What would be their their go to if this if if both of these issues don't get resolved for these exchanges? Well, those aren't the only headwinds facing exchanges, um, because the SEC is also going after more and more tokens right now. Like, especially when they started with right. the um, library token, they have expanded their definitions of what it means for these tokens to be a security. They're trying out new definitions in some of these potentially precedent-setting cases. And if an entity like Coinbase can no longer list, let 
let's just say 90%. Let's say Coinbase can no longer list 90% of the assets on their exchange. Conservatively. Most of the assets on their exchange are bad. <laughs> They're bad. And many of them look to me, who, again, is not a lawyer. Uh, they look like securities. They quack like securities. Um if they're no longer able to list that, they're no longer collecting the fees on any of those trades, right? And so you've got kind of the liquidity crunch because it's harder to get dollars in and out. You have fewer active markets where you can trade. You're no longer getting your revenue from staking. And increasingly, there seems to be a pressure that the regulators want these cryptocurrency exchanges to come in and basically register and exist as securities exchanges. The publicly traded cryptocurrency exchange, we have Coinbase, trades at a massively higher multiple over their like uh, trading revenue than something like Charles Schwab does, like a regular broker. And so you also would expect that at that point you might start to see some more compression of the ratios these companies are valued at, along with this compression of the revenue they're able to earn from fees, along with this liquidity crunch from the loss of banking partners, along with the loss of revenue from the loss of staking, along with the fact that nobody uses Coinbase's NFT marketplace they invested like $100 million into. And eventually you start to reach a point where it does seem that a business like Coinbase becomes challenging, especially when they're still burning a massive amount of cash every single quarter. They still haven't been profitable. Even during the massive bull run when they were making fees on all of this bullshit, they still couldn't eke out a profit and were burning hundreds of millions of dollars in cash per quarter. Uh, uh, Bennett, what, what are the odds you think of you and I both needing to broaden the uh, discussed topics on each of our respective shows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, <laughs> there is this challenge <laughs> when there was a challenge in branding. Cass and I made branding decisions early on in our podcast. At least you've got the whole economy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've I, I made it so I could talk about many different scams online. And if I want to even broaden outside of online scams, I can. Um There'll always be crypto for there to be a critic's corner. Uh, the question yeah. is, how many episodes can you do a year? <laughs> I, there certainly have been times that Cass and I have discussed launching other ventures to cover things besides cryptocurrency. I have made some non-cryptocurrency related videos on like my personal YouTube channel and stuff more recently. Because there is kind of this... I, you feel it, especially in the bear market, but when you're making cryptocurrency content, even when you're making content critical of cryptocurrency, your numbers tend to run with the market. Like even for critical content, when the market's running up, it's a lot easier to expand your following. And when the bottom falls out on a market, a lot of the people who were following you and who were listening to you suddenly just no longer care about cryptocurrency and just disappear get washed out of the industry or whatever and so yeah your numbers do slow a lot when you go into like a bear market and there is kind of this dynamic where regulators really are pushing crypto in now i do think i've got at least a few more years of covering regulators pushing crypto in until it's effectively a boring if somewhat esoteric corner of the financial system along with a few of the more real protocols which people use for some sideline stuff um 
I don't think it's fully going to go away. There's going to be some people who find a way to integrate the profitable parts into the existing profitable parts of the financial system. And the more fringe, like actually censorship resistant parts will get pushed more to the fringe as regulators cut off their easy access to the broader financial system. Right. And it seems like we have uh, uh, plenty of time to still, uh, uh, unfortunately, but luckily for our respective shows again, uh, it seems like Web3 is uh, still a buzz, buzzword in the tech industry and isn't going anywhere. I, I went to CES in January, and every single company, no one wanted to mention the word crypto. No one's talking about crypto. Uh, but everyone wanted to talk about their company as a Web3 company or a Metaverse company. Um, and there's, you know, metaverse is its own thing, but there's also a number of ways it overlaps in the web three, uh, uh, ecosystem. But yeah. yeah but web three is still buzzy. How much of that is just, you know, like CES and the CES effect, right? Like these companies want to be innovative. They're not actually innovative. They hear there's this thing which they associate with innovation. And so they announce we're going to be doing this. And most of them don't really have very many details on what that's going to look like. But for those couple weeks in January, you get to say, look at this is what we're going to be doing. And when you never do it, no one cares. Right. No, that's definitely a big part of it. Absolutely. Uh, and it also hasn't helped uh, the, I guess, the broad blockchain industry uh, that uh, just as it's having its its hardest couple of months, the uh AI tech trend friggin' rocket ships off into, you know, that's, it's funny. We've been hearing for years now about crypto uh, going to the moon, but AI has, <laughs> the AI trend is friggin' rocketed to, you know, Mars. It's been ridiculous how much more buzzy AI uh, has been in just these past couple of months than the crypto could have hoped for. And even it's, it's peak in like, you know, late 2021 and into early last year. I think it's helpful that for the average person, chat GPT or mid journey is way easier to start using than cryptocurrency. And you get a more immediate, you get more immediate feedback you type your prompt and you see your picture. You hear the cloned voice suddenly start saying the words. You read ChatGPT answer the question you asked with a couple of mistakes, but hey, who's paying that much attention? And so because it's that much more accessible than cryptocurrency, I think it was easier for it to get kind of that buzz very quickly. Plus, AI has the built-in advantage that the media and content creators broadly get the opportunity to be like, that segment you just heard me read, I didn't even need to write. That image you just saw, I didn't need to draw, right? And so you get kind of the novelty. And so it was, there was a lot of individuals who could make it into very easy content, both on YouTube, but also like news broadcasters have all been doing that with ChatGPT as well. And so that I think also helped it propagate more easily. Talking about cryptocurrency makes you feel like you need to be an expert in six different fields. And even still, there's someone there who's like figured it out a little bit better. And because of that, like you're going to make a mistake and mess up your coverage of this. AI feels more straightforward to cover because you don't need to understand the matrix multiplications that are actually happening under the table to talk about it. Whereas in crypto, 
you do a little bit or there's like this expectation almost that you will in the community kind of like if you don't discuss all those details perfectly, the crypto community tends to lash out at you for discussing it. And AI does not have that same tendency to lash out at people. I mean, there's still a pretty strong anti-AI movement around the copyright rights and the way this is exploiting various artists' labor and all that. But like, it's still far more accessible and easy to discuss than something like cryptocurrency. Yo, absolutely. And I'm going to solve that problem by creating a system where if you lose your seed phrase, all your AI generated images are gone. <laughs> Everyone's going to love it. <laughs> uh, how are you going to make it right click save proof, though? Uh, that's true. That's true. I, that's another thing, though, that I wonder if there will be eventually as more people um as more people discover AI art imagery and generation and how easy it is, I do wonder uh, if the NFT market will latch on to that more so than I think they've been trying to already and sort of use that as a, another kickoff point to say, oh, all those AI generated images you made, why not monetize them on the blockchain? You know, like it feels like that's just waiting to happen. I, I think it has already started with several different NFT projects trying to do like AI generated mints where they set up like a series of prompts. I think there've even been a couple that did it in like kind of fun ways where you bought the prompt before it was like actually the image was actually generated. So you didn't actually know what you were buying, but yeah, I think that's oh, already fun, started. fun, fun, <laughs> different, unique, slightly novel. I cover this stuff all the time, Matt. I need some kind of novelty in my life. I can't look at one more monkey JPEG, okay? I just can't do it. Oh, man. You know, that's, yeah, that, we can talk about a hundred things here. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Bored Apes so really quick. I, I can't believe they're still selling for as much as they are. So uh, I guess the, the way to bring that into this episode is just to say, as long as those monkey JPEGs are selling for a million bucks still, you and I, our shows are safe for the, at least the near future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as a company can raise $450 million, half a billion, and then release Dookie Dash, as long as that's a thing that's allowed to happen in society, I think we'll be okay. I cannot wait for uh, the the filings from the SEC going after Dookie Dash. I cannot wait. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic to see. <laughs> the congressional hearings, Congress people asking about Dookie Dash. I cannot wait. It's going to happen. You know it. I'm not saying I know anything. Don't but speak it, this into existence yes. for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like something that's going to happen. We deserve it. Uh, Bennett Toblin, uh, head researcher at uh, Protos, uh, also co-host of the Cri Crypto Critics Corner. Uh, be sure right now, Bennett, the floor is yours. Tell everyone the, the URLs, where they can find you on social media. Go ahead. Sure. So, uh Crypto Critics Corner is on YouTube at CryptoCriticsCorner.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. I've got a personal YouTube you can find as well if you search Bennett Tomlin. And I write for Protos Media, which you can read at Protos.com. Perfect. It's always a pleasure to have you on this show. It's, it's, it's a way to like 
like you said, you need something to to keep you entertained in this world. And I feel like we do that when you come on and we talk. We, I'm having we, a good time. We we yeah we get into the 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 board ape jungles of crypto, and we uh we we uh we have fun dookie dashing. I guess that's the verb 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 to use for it. <laughs> have a great night, Bennett. Take care. You too. And I can tell you now that there are a number of great Scam Economy shows in the works. Now that I'm feeling a little bit better, as always, you can go to patreon.com slash Binder to support this show. Your monthly subscription is very helpful in growing the show and helping me take it to the next level. Subscribing to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Binder is another great way to uh, support the show. It's also a great way to catch the video version of this show because the video episodes are uploaded there. And you can also catch my live streams and other content that goes up on there too. Same with Twitch at twitch.tv slash mattbinder. You can follow me there. And if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can connect your Amazon account to your Twitch account and you get a free Twitch Prime subscription every month. It's a paid subscription for your favorite creator that doesn't cost you anything extra. It just comes out of what you're already paying Amazon for Amazon Prime. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Binder. You can find all the podcast episodes of this show at scameconomy.com. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or at Spotify, be sure to take a few seconds to leave a review. It helps get this show up in the rankings, which in turn helps more people discover the show. And with all that said, I will see you all next time on the scam economy.